Good morning. For the next hour or so, I'd like to speak to you about Christian persecution. As believers living in the United States, we've had it easy. We've been, for the most part, free from severe persecution. But this seems to be changing, and it seems to be changing at a rapid pace. Unbelievers may soon be able to express their hate for Bible-believing Christians legally. For example, the House of Representatives recently voted to pass the Equality Act. The Equality Act is said to be a bill that would ban discrimination against sexual orientation and gender identity. Now that sounds harmless, but it would essentially destroy religious freedom and infringe upon privacy rights. A pastor by the name of Gabriel Hughes has explained the effects the Equality Act would have. Listen to what he wrote. The Equality Act is the greatest threat to religious liberty in American history. The bill explicitly states in a single sentence that it trumps the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under the Equality Act, you could not say, own a cake shop and refuse to bake a transition cake for a man who wants to celebrate that he's becoming a woman. If you are a photographer, you could not refuse to take pictures for a gay wedding. If you are a doctor, you could not, as a matter of conscience, refuse to perform an abortion or castrate a boy who identifies as a girl. Yes, you read that right. The Equality Act will force Christian doctors and faith-based hospitals to kill living, moving, kicking, feeling babies, or they cannot practice medicine. They will be required to do sex change surgeries. Many of these procedures, like mutilating a boy's sexual organs or giving girls testosterone, are irreversible or have lifelong consequences. Some of these procedures will be performed on children. If you're a business owner, you would not be allowed to fire one of your employees because he started dressing like a woman or using women's restrooms and asking male coworkers out on dates. You could not fire a woman because you found out she's been sleeping around, got pregnant, and had an abortion. You cannot call any of these unacceptable behaviors for your employees. Calling a person by the wrong preferred pronouns will be a punishable offense, as it is already in some places. You will not be allowed to tell LGBTQ persons that they are in sin, worthy of the judgment of God, and that by faith in Christ they will be saved. He says this, even if a man is convicted of his sexual perversion and wants to change, If someone reports you saying that Jesus will change him, that will be categorized as conversion therapy, which is illegal under the Equality Act. It is bad enough that Christians will not be allowed to have Christian convictions in secular jobs or in public spaces, but do you think that churches and religious institutions will be exempt? We might be able to enjoy our First Amendment protections at first, but they will not last. The long, slimy tentacles of the Equality Act will come for your speech and your beliefs, 
your business and your school and eventually your church and your family. I don't share that to scare you, but I must sound the alarm. Persecution is coming and we would do well to prepare ourselves. If we would weather the coming storms of persecution, we must, so to speak, batten down the hatches. The best time to prepare for any hardship is before any hardship arrives. And the more difficult a hardship is, the more necessary the preparation. In large part, our success depends upon our readiness. Are you ready? Perhaps you're wondering how. How do we prepare ourselves? I would submit to you that at the very least, we need to review what Scripture says about persecution. That is, after all, why Scripture speaks of it in the first place, to prepare us. It's not in there for nothing. In order to get us started on this important task, I've chosen to preach on Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. If you haven't already, open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. As most of you already know, Matthew chapter 5 records the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 3 through 12 are commonly called the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes describe the characteristics of those who are in a truly happy state or condition. If the Beatitudes describe you, you are truly in a happy state. You are a blessed man or blessed woman. With that in mind, I'll read verses 1 through 12. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would assist us this morning by your spirit. Help us to receive these words as coming from you. Help us to respond to them in the correct way, in the God-honoring way. I pray for myself that you would help me to explain any complexities with simplicity. 
We thank you so much for this light that we have in our hands right now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. From this morning's text, I would have us make four important observations. I would have us observe, number one, the definite occurrence of Christian persecution. Number two, the distinct causes of Christian persecution. Number three, the different types of Christian persecution. And number four, the directed response to Christian persecution. First, let's observe the definite occurrence of Christian persecution. Christians will be persecuted. It's a matter of fact. It's not a possibility. It's an inevitability. It's something that's unable to be avoided, evaded, or escaped. And we see this in both verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who have been persecuted. The verb have been persecuted or are persecuted in the ESV is in the perfect tense. What does that mean? It means persecution wasn't just something the disciples had gone through or had experienced at some point in the past, but that it was something they would continue to experience in the present. The sense of verse 10 is, blessed are those who have been and will continue to be persecuted. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when, not if, but when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Again, persecution persecution isn't just possible, it's inevitable. It's sure to occur. Not only do we see this taught here in our text, but we see this taught throughout the New Testament. For an example, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Luke writes in verses 21 and 22, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Can it get any clearer? than that. No one goes to heaven without being harassed to some degree or another. No one. Let's look at one more example. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Once you're there, find verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christian persecution will definitely occur. Because of the testimony of Scripture, no believer should ever be surprised by having to suffer. Actually, we're commanded to not be surprised. 
Two times in Scripture, we're commanded to not be surprised, and both of them have to do with persecution. You are not to be surprised by it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. It's so important that we expect to go through hardships. And why? Because when we expect to go through hardships, we're not caught off guard when they come. When we expect hardships, we live more soberly. We prepare for them and thus more successfully handle them. And not only that, but when we expect hardships, they become lighter than they would have been. I think oftentimes what makes suffering so heavy is its suddenness, its unexpectedness. But the expectation of suffering takes away its edge. It it dulls its sharpness. The anticipation of, of being harassed will go a long way in helping us to be faithful men and women of God. By the way, this is one of the reasons that the Word of Faith movement is so dangerous, because instead of preparing people for persecution, it promises them prosperity, right? But Jesus, but Jesus Christ didn't die to take away our crosses. He died to take away the curse. That's why he died. And Jesus didn't uh, come to take away our sins. He came to take away our sufferings. And the sooner we realize that, the better. Not one of God's children has lived or ever will live without suffering. Although he has one son without sin, he has no son without sorrows. If the master suffered, so will we who are his slaves. That's what Tim read for us this morning in John chapter 15. And Thomas Watson counseled, set it down as a maxim. If you follow Christ, you must see the swords and staves. Set it down. Count on it. Anticipate it and expect it. If we are following Christ, we will be attacked in some way or another And if we're not, if we're not, that's actually cause for concern. It's cause for concern. I wasn't going to have you turn to this next passage, but I will. It's important that you see it with your own eyes. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. This chapter records for us the sermon on the plain. And it sounds very familiar to the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. 
if we're not being attacked in any way because of our commitment to Christ, we have to wonder why. Christ pronounces woe on such a person. J.C. Ryle said, to be universally popular is a most unsatisfactory symptom and one of which a minister of Christ should always be afraid. If everybody likes you, be afraid. He says it may well make him doubt whether he is faithfully doing his duty and honestly declaring all the counsel of God. If you don't want persecution, all you have to do is blend in. It's not hard. And if you're not experiencing any any hardships, even rude comments, we have to ask why. We have to wonder why. Now that we've observed the definite occurrence of Christian persecution, let's in the second place observe its distinct causes. Its distinct causes. There are two distinct causes of Christian persecution listed here in our text. The first is deeds of righteousness. Deeds of righteousness. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Antagonism towards Christians arises from their righteous actions. Why? Because righteous conduct condemns unrighteous conduct. One Bible professor put it like this, the godly character of Jesus' followers and the righteous conduct that the Sermon on the Mount describes serve as a silent indictment of the sinful lifestyles of others. Such righteousness incites resentment and inspires mistreatment. A righteous life is a rebuke to the unrighteous. Again, in order to experience hostility, all one has to do is live heavenly. Live a holy life and you'll experience hostility. That is the cause of Christian persecution, or at least one of them. Turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. By the way, the letters of Peter are very appropriate letters for us to be studying in this day. I would commend them to you. Read and read them again. Study them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 say, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation And they, what? Malign you. Charles Quarles, commenting on this text, wrote, Jesus' followers strive for sexual purity. They insist on absolute honesty and practice self-control. 
Those who are sexually loose, dishonest, and unrestrained interpret the disciples' behavior as a condemnation of their own behavior. They often respond by pressuring the disciples to conform. If he or she refuses to conform, they may begin to mock and ridicule the disciples' commitment and character. Persecutors may even resort to more drastic measures. Although righteous behavior sometimes inspires the respect of others, it also often invites persecution. The corruption of the human heart and its love for sin ensures Jesus' disciples will be hated and hurt, end quote. To get on an unbeliever's bad side, you don't even need to say anything. Just live your life according to the Bible. That will be enough to make them upset. Christians experience persecution because of their deeds of righteousness. That's the first cause. The second is devotion to Christ. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's because of him. I don't think we truly understand how much the world hates Christ. I think we forget the world hated Jesus so much that it murdered him. That's the extent to which the, the fallen men of this world hate God. They executed him. And if Jesus came back to earth even this morning to once again uh, walk among us, the world would once again seek to kill him. Nothing's changed. We have to understand that Christ is a controversial figure. This is due to his controversial claims. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Turn or burn. That's how you can summarize the message of Christ. Turn or burn. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is the message we as Christians proclaim. And is it any wonder why we're persecuted? We preach Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We spread a scandalous message, an offensive message. People are willing to to maybe recognize Jesus as a good moral teacher, maybe even as a miracle worker, but the insistence that he is very God of very God, that he alone is the Savior of mankind, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that is too much for them to bear, and so they ridicule us. It's because we speak truth that the world hates us. We speak against the very sins unbelievers love. If anyone ever attacks someone or something you love, your blood boils. We speak against unbelievers' beloved sins. Like Paul, we proclaim that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The world despises us for those words. 
Jesus stated, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil, and the same is true of us. As I was in my study this past week, I read a story about a man named Savonarola. Savonarola was a great reformer. Some would say he was one of the greatest reformers in church history. This Italian preacher is said to have paved the way for what became known as the Protestant Reformation. I believe it started a few days after he died. One of his biographers wrote, His preaching was a voice of thunder, and his denunciation of sin was so terrible that the people who listened to him went about the streets half-dazed, bewildered, and speechless. His congregations were so often in tears that the whole building resounded with their sobs and their weeping. You want to know what happened to Savonarola? He was convicted of heresy and was hanged and then burned. The world cannot listen to the truth of God's word without lashing out. It rebukes them. It condemns them. They'll do whatever it takes to make it stop. There's only two responses to the truth being spoken. Either someone comes to Christ or they hate you. Before moving on, it needs to be made clear that Christ's pronouncement of blessing applies only to Christian persecution. It applies only to Christian persecution. It applies only to those who are persecuted because of these distinct causes. He's not pronouncing blessing on those who suffer in general. Jesus is not describing those who suffer for any old religion. The only people who can be legitimately consoled by these words are those who suffer for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of the Savior. The cause of Christian persecution is distinct. It's distinct. What qualifies someone to receive comfort from our text is not persecution itself, but these causes of persecution. We have to get that straight. And because of this, we must take great care that we suffer because of godliness and not ungodliness. We never want to be the person who who pats himself on the back because he's facing the consequences of his own foolishness. I'm thinking about the person who congratulates himself for getting fired because he was reading his his Bible instead of working, right? That's stealing time from one's employer. That's not Christian persecution. That's a legitimate consequence of not working. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 says, Make sure that none of you suffers, suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. When we are persecuted, we should ask why. And if it's for sin, we should repent. If it's for righteousness, then we rejoice. So far, we've observed the definite occurrence and the distinct causes of Christian persecution. Third, let's observe the different types of persecution, the different types. 
There are two types of persecution mentioned here in our text. There is what I call hand persecution, and there's tongue persecution. First, there is hand persecution. Hand persecution is physical persecution. The words uh, have been persecuted in verse 10, persecute in verse 11, and persecuted in verse 12 are from the Greek verb dioko, dioko, which means to cause, to run, or set in motion, drive away, drive out. And this verb is, is used in this literal sense in Matthew chapter 23, but it can also refer to any form of harassment, including violent abuse, such as killing, crucifying, and scourging, imprisonment, and other unjust treatment, such as excommunication. Although this type of persecution is somewhat rare in the United States, it's nonetheless teeming today. It may surprise you that some estimate that more Christians have suffered martyrdom in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. They estimate that since the church began at Pentecost, there have been 70 million martyrs, and 45 million of those 70 million were martyred between the years 1900 and 2000. That's 45 million Christians martyred in the last 120 years. We should never forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering in other parts of the world. We should bear them up in prayer always. We ought to be praying for our brother James Coates, who's just northeast of us in Alberta. He's in custody for continuing to hold church services. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. It's a command to remember such ones. So the first type of persecution is hand persecution, physical persecution. Second, there is tongue persecution. That is verbal persecution. It's verbal harassment. Jesus listed two types of this persecution in verse 11. There are insults and there are false sayings. There's reviling and there's slandering. And what's the difference? The difference is that while insults are injurious words said to us, False sayings are injurious words said about us to others. One is face-to-face, the other is behind the back. The people of God have always been the target of such persecution, always. For example, in the first three centuries of the church, Christians were accused of all sorts of perverse acts, including cannibalism and incest. They were also accused of being atheists, and haters of mankind. And as you may expect, all of those accusations were extreme distortions of the truth. The accusation of cannibalism was most likely on account of the celebration of the Lord's table. The accusation of incest was most likely on account of Christian spouses referring to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The accusation of atheism was most likely on account of believers rejecting the false gods of Rome. 
the accusation of being haters of mankind was most likely on account of Christians refusing to participate in actual perverse acts. 1 Peter 4. They malign you if you don't go along with them. As has been explained, some of these accusations were probably not merely confused interpretations of uh, misunderstood Christian practices. They were likely deliberate distortions of the truth designed to defame believers. Deliberate distortions designed to defame. We must be prepared to experience that same type of persecution today. Expect to be, expect the truth to be deliberately distorted to defame you. If we refuse to affirm the sin of homosexuality, we'll be called hateful and homophobic. We'll be called oppressors. That's a popular word right now. You're an oppressor. You're colonizer. You're colonizing. You're forcing your views on, on minority groups. We'll experience the same kind of accusation when it comes to transgenderism. Are you ready to be labeled transphobic or a narrow-minded extremist who deserves to die? I see those comments all the time on Twitter. Look at the comments. You see persecution, tongue persecution, all the time. Tragically, many so-called Christians are caving. They're apologizing for making certain statements about homosexuality. If we're not prepared for severe verbal persecution, you, we may very well capitulate, right? Compromise, give in. Oh, I didn't mean that when I said that. It's actually okay. <clears throat> you young people need to know this is especially important for you. If you follow hard after Christ, you will be made fun of. People will say you're, you're naive or even mentally ill. You'll have friends desert you and exclude you because of your views. They'll speak ill of you behind your back. And you must resolve now that you'll stand for what is right or you won't when the time comes. Honestly, I find all this to be encouraging. And what I mean by that is it's encouraging to know Christ considers even injurious words to be persecution. Oftentimes we make light of lighter persecution, right? Uh, we, we oftentimes, or we have a tendency to view persecution as only being martyrdom or at least something physical. But this is simply not the case. If we've ever been badmouthed because of Christ, we will be rewarded for it. That's what Christ is saying here. Even if it is something slight, like being called maybe simple-minded for, for trusting in Christ. He will honor us for that. Amen? This morning we've observed the definite occurrence of Christian persecution, its distinct causes, the different types of it. In the last place, let's observe the directed response to Christian persecution. Look at verse 12. It says, Rejoice, and be glad. That's a strange exhortation, isn't it? 
when persecuted and reviled and slandered, we are not simply to be patient and submissive to the sovereign will of God, but we are to rejoice and be glad. In the words of John Stott, we are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should rejoice, and even to leap for joy. And that's not an exaggeration. Christ commands us that. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, we're called to um, be glad in that day, the day of persecution, and leap for joy. The directed response to Christian persecution is extreme joy. Note that these imperatives are in the present tense. They're in the present tense. And thus, these these actions of, of rejoicing and being glad are to be done continually. We are to always rejoice. We are to always be glad even in the midst of persecution. Even in the midst, while it's happening, is the sense. As one has said, this joy is not a belated response to persecution that occurs after insults have ceased to sting or the nerves torn by stripes on one's back have ceased to scream. This joy characterizes the disciples even as the insults are hurled and the scourge lacerates the flesh. The apostles are a great example to us. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 5 to see such an example. Acts chapter 5. Verses 40 and 41 say, Acts chapter 5, After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's easy to read those words without really picturing what was happening. So I want you to consider something. I want you to consider that flogging, at least by the Sanhedrin, involved 39 lashes. 39. It was a horrific form of torture, and it sometimes even resulted in death. Some people couldn't take those 39 lashes. With that in mind, read verse 41 again. It says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Even as their backs were bleeding and bruised, raw and sensitive, the blood still running down, they rejoiced. They didn't rejoice once the scabs fell off. Oh, you remember that one time? It was still hurting, and yet they're rejoicing. Again, if we're honest, that seems like an impossible task. It seems very unreasonable for Christ to command this of us, at least until we remember the reasons we have to rejoice. When we remember the reasons we have to rejoice, 
This command, this directed response to Christian persecution is not unreasonable at all. It really isn't. We come to say with the Apostle John when we remember our reasons to rejoice, his commandments are not burdensome, right? They're not burdensome. Well, what reasons do we have to rejoice when persecuted? Our text contains three. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first reason we have to rejoice is because the kingdom is ours. In other words, suffering for the king proves we are his subjects. It certifies that we are citizens of the kingdom. One of the greatest blessings of being persecuted is proof of our sincerity. Hypocrites, you see, are not willing to suffer for what is a sham. They're just not. They're fair-weather followers. They'll follow Christ so long as it benefits them, so long as it's expedient. But as soon as the heat is turned up, they wave the white flag. This is what Scripture tells us. It's nothing new. Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, we read, Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. False converts do not endure persecution. So what does it mean if we do endure persecution? It means we're true converts. It means we are those who will inherit the kingdom when it comes. It means we won't be among those who are cast out into outer darkness where there's gnashing, right? Gnashing of teeth and weeping. That is how we, like many men and women of God who have gone before us, can sing in the stocks. That's how we can kiss the rod that strikes us. Because with every blow, our genuineness is being made manifest. I'm persevering. I must be a true saint. And I'm happy. That's the first reason we have to rejoice when persecuted, because the kingdom is ours. The second is because we will be rewarded. Verse 11 and 12 say, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Not only will those who suffer for Christ inherit the kingdom, although that would be enough, but they will also be rewarded. Heaven will make amends for all. You won't regret anything once you get to heaven. Although we may lose everything now, our our family, our friends, our, our possessions, our reputation, our very lives, we shall gain everything in the end. The world will be ours. And that's not hyperbole. 
Jesus taught that the gentle or the meek will inherit what? The earth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. That reign happens on the earth. Although the people of God are run down by the world in the present, they will rule over the world in the future. And this is why we can be truly happy, come what may. The third reason we have to rejoice when persecuted is because of the company it puts us in. The company it puts us in. Again, verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Being persecuted places us in the company of the prophets, and it gives us a prophet's honor. John MacArthur wrote, When we suffer for Christ's sake, we are in the best possible company. To be afflicted for righteousness' sake is to stand in the ranks of the prophets. Persecution is a mark of our faithfulness, just as it was a mark of the prophets' faithfulness. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we know beyond a doubt that we belong to God because we are experiencing the same reaction from the world that the prophets experienced. To be persecuted verifies that we belong to the line of the righteous, end quote. Isn't that a consolation? When we suffer adversity for the Lord, we stand with such, Moses, with such men as Moses, uh, with David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. John Brown said, in such company, reproach becomes praise and dishonor glory. If you have a hero and you're likened to that hero or treated like that hero, It makes you happy, right? Because you want to be like them. If I had to sum up my sermon in, in four short sayings, they would be, expect persecution. That's number one, expect persecution. Number two, make sure you suffer for the right reasons. For righteousness, not unrighteousness. For godliness, not ungodliness. Number three, don't discount lighter forms of persecution. Don't think that you have to be a martyr in order for God to be pleased with you. It's even be call, it's, you're, you'll be honored and rewarded by him for even be, being called uh, what are childish names. Fourth, rejoice and be glad. Expect persecution Make sure you suffer for the right reasons. Don't discount lighter forms of persecution and rejoice and be glad. And of course, you know why. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sermon of of Christ's. We thank you for not leaving us without any resources. You've given us everything we need to